please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. And this morning we're just going to look at verse 12. Next week we'll look at verses 13 to the end of the chapter, but this morning we're just going to look at verse 12. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Lord, as we continue to exalt in you, our rock and our redeemer, we pray that you would by the power of your Spirit, use your word to cleanse us, to correct us, to comfort us, to change us, that Christ might be exalted in us. We give you the glory. Amen. Do you know what I'm doing right now? It looks mainly like a stretch. But one of you, one or two of you might know maybe if I go like this and then go like that. It's called the uh, the spear system. This is the flinch response. <sighs> Somebody does something to you, something falls, and you go ah like this. That can be turned into a self defense system, where if somebody was going to swing you or something, you go like that, and you go right into the the coming arm or club or whatever it is. You go like that. It's part of a system that's called be your own bodyguard. Be your own bodyguard, and it's a pretty easy system. It's nothing that's super complicated. There are times, by God's grace, and we can be thankful to the Lord, but there are times in life when you might have to to be your own bodyguard. Hopefully that never happens, but there are times when you have to defend yourself. And there's a system, I'm not necessarily recommending the man, but Tony Blair not a believer, but he has a whole system about be your own bodyguard. You have to, at times, protect yourself. Spiritually, as we look at Scripture, if we are not our own bodyguard, then we will drift away from the faith. There is a true biblical sense in which you must be your own bodyguard spiritually. If not, then you're going to be in a world of hurt. You can't always have your pastor with you. You can't even always have necessarily a a Bible with you. You may have to have the word hid in your heart so you can remember to quote it to yourself. Church people may not be there. You, You may not have access to immediate fellowship. Your parents may not be there. Your kids may be not, may not be there. Maybe you don't have access to the internet. There's many times and many ways you have to be your own spiritual bodyguard at work. Maybe you're at work and everybody that you work with, nobody there is saved and nobody knows the Lord. Well, you have to be your own spiritual bodyguard. If you're not your own spiritual bodyguard, then it can be very easy, as we see in Hebrews chapter 2, to drift away and to neglect the salvation that we see in chapter 2, verse 3, verse 1 of chapter 2 so that we do not drift away from it. Chapter 3, verse 12 of Hebrew, Hebrews falls into this context of we need to do whatever we can so that we don't drift away from the faith and neglect our great salvation. And so 
apostatize, as verse 12 says, from this living God. And so there's a true biblical sense in which to not drift away, you have to be your own bodyguard. When we drift away from Christ Jesus, we're in a very dangerous position. And it's a heart issue, so take care of your own heart. And this whole passage, but especially chapter 3, verse 12, is calling you and I to be a heart guard, not just a bodyguard, not just be your own bodyguard, but even better and even more important than that, you have to be your own heart guard. If not, then you're going to place yourself in a dangerous position. Now, we have already looked at this whole passage. It's chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down, I believe, to chapter 4, verse 13. And it's saying, drifting away from Christ is a heart issue. Take care of the heart. And there's many treatments. The first treatment we saw was in verse 1, and that is develop a biblical self-image. And then the second treatment we looked at was right now, right now, because of the language of the the words, the context, but even the word itself. In chapter 3, verse 1, which says, consider Jesus, the New Testament Greek grammar is right now. It's very important that you think not so much deeply, but clearly about Jesus. The third treatment about being sure our heart is in a healthy condition, our spiritual heart, is prioritize a gospel walk with God more than supernatural experiences that may be Godward and may in a certain sense be godly, but are not necessarily life-transforming. And we saw that in verses 6 through 11. The Israelites, in Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 11, based upon Psalm 95, experienced God and his providence and his goodness in many ways. And they saw many miraculous signs. They saw his power, great power of God, and and many different ways, whether it was a pillar of fire, the Red Seas dividing, whether all the plagues that conquered the false Egyptian gods. And yet, out of that generation that was delivered from bondage, all but two of them did not enter into the promised land. Because they didn't guard their heart. They, in a sense, drifted away from the Lord. Now this morning, we're going to look at verse 12. And if you're taking notes, this is the fourth treatment. The fourth heart treatment. And it's guard against your deadly heart disease of unbelief. Guard against your own deadly heart disease. Be your own heart guard. The greatest cardiac problem there is, is unbelief. The biggest heart problem that you and I could ever have is unbelief. And the Bible, when it talks about heart, it's not just your emotions. It's affections, it's will, it's thinking, it's conscience. Remember, it's the the inner headquarters and nexus of your whole being. Not just love, but everything that is you and the inside, that is your heart. From desires to the direction of your thinking. That is what the Bible means when it talks about heart. So, 
Several points then based upon this, based upon guarding your own heart, being your own heart guard. First, this is a command to be a sentinel. This is a command to be a sentinel. Look at chapter 3, verse 12, and look at those, at least in the numeric and standard, the first two words, take care. This is a command, and this word is translated many different ways in the New Testament. This is the word basically to see, to look out, to be watchful. You might remember in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Beware of the evil dogs. Beware of the false circumcision. Beware. And three times Paul says in Philippians 3, 2, Beware, beware, beware. Well, this is the same word. It can be translated to see, to look out, to watch. Some of the older versions, maybe the King James says, Take care, take heed, be careful, beware, see to it. It's the idea of a sentry guard that is placed in a certain position so he can guard the building or the camp from a deceitful and dangerous enemy. If there's an enemy, whether it's just a terrorist or somebody that's going to rob a place, normally they try to creep in deceitfully, using stealth, not to be seen, not to be heard. And so there needs to be a lookout. There needs to be a sentry. And this is how this word is being used here. And so it can be translated in all these various ways from take care to be aware to be on guard. But look at verse 12 it's not necessarily against somebody else that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. We ought to watch over ourselves. And this is 24-7. Keep looking at those first two words, at least in my text. It could be be aware in yours. This is the idea of being constantly, habitual, habitually aware and watchful that a deceitful and dangerous enemy does not get into your heart. As a believer, you have to watch out for this. If I can stay on the self-defense theme, often what's said is keep your head on a swivel. Always be ready. Always. Lisa's father used to say, watch everybody and everything when we would go out with the kids. The idea is that you always are watchful. Always. Always. Always doors, windows. Not in a paranoid. Being sure nobody's hiding in there to ambush me. Not, not in a paranoid sense, but being careful, being prepared. Understanding that there is an enemy. Certainly, Satan. Satan is defeated. The greatest enemy that I have is, is me. It's me. It's my own remaining sin that's inside of me. And so when it says, take care or take heed or beware or watchful or look out, it's the idea of placing a lookout, a sentry or guard over myself 24-7. That I'm always alert. I'm always ready. I'm going to be careful about my own heart. Carelessness will carry you to condemnation. 
this idea of being careless with our own heart, it will carry you to condemnation. This is what this text, in its context, is saying. Now, second, as we consider this idea of we, we don't want to drift away, we, we don't want to make a profession of Christ, and then after weeks, days, years, to slowly or quickly fall away from Christ, we professed him, but never really possessed him, and part of that in the sovereign providence of God is because I didn't use the means of being careful and looking out after my own heart. So I need to be a sentinel over me. But then second, idea of guarding against this deadly heart disease of unbelief, just to further target this, when you look at the, the text... It's this is a self-watch. This is a self-watch. And we've mentioned that, but I want to glue it in the text. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you. Verse 13, we'll talk about that we encourage one another. But before we encourage one another, we need to actually, in a sense, Exhort ourselves. We need to care for ourselves. It's back to Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. I have to be careful about trying to pull somebody's splinter out of their eye when I have a log in my own eye. I can't help somebody else watch over the unbelief that's in their heart if I'm not dealing with any unbelief that's in my heart. Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite. And though God may use my words, I'm not going to have the power by the Spirit of God that I might have otherwise. I need, in one sense, not not to be self-introspective, but I have to be certain that I'm pointing the finger to me, lest any one of you. Reminds me, and hopefully this passage has come to your mind as you've talked about the heart Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. And I think it can be especially difficult for parents or for a pastor to focus in one sense on their heart because there's a temptation, even in preaching, even in writing a sermon, to focus mainly or primarily on others. But Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. This is a command to be a sentinel, but to be a sentinel not just over others, but over myself. And there is, I think, humility that's here. I have to be willing to say that God is sovereign and he that began a good work in me will perfect it until that day. Salvation is secure in Christ. I'm complete in Him. I have the Spirit of God, and it's an engagement, reading a promise that since I have His Spirit, He's going to keep me saved. However, that is worked out by persevering. It's worked out by continuing in Christ. Therefore, there is a certain amount of, of human means and caution and deliberateness and diligence that I must make 
Not in order to save myself. I'm only saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, by His mercy. I'm saved because God regenerated me in Christ. However, proof of that is demonstrated that I'm going to battle my unbelief that remains and not allow that unbelief to corrupt me. In fact, this phraseology here, when it says, take care or be aware and lest there be, that there not be in any one of you, is commonly used throughout the New Testament really as a warning. Be careful. Take heed to this warning that anybody, because of remaining sin, anybody that professes Christ is in danger not that, again, not that they could lose their salvation, but that sin is so deceitful, it could lie to you, and that unbelief that is still there could grow and could gain influence in your life. And so we must take care. Nobody drifts away from Christ just because it, it just so happened. It's because of deceitful unbelief. Why do people that we know and love, why do seminary students, pastors, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers fall away from Christ? It's because of unbelief. They listened too long and too hard to the lies of unbelief. Now, third, we're talking about guard against your deadly heart disease. Be a sentinel, especially this as a self-watch over your own self. And then third, additionally, this focuses on preventing on any amount of disbelief. This focuses on prevention, on preventing any amount of disbelief in yourself, in your own in our headquarters. Look back at the text, and maybe this will help us to understand how can a, a true, authentic, born-again believer have an evil heart of unbelief? What's going on in verse 12? Well, know what the text says. Take care, be, be aware, look out, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. He's not saying this. Take care, brethren, you have an evil heart. He's not saying that. Rather, the text says, take care that this does not happen. This is prevention. He's not saying your heart, in in this instance, in this text, he's not saying your inner man, your inner headquarters is evil. He's saying, be careful that you don't allow your inner person, your inner man, to be overcome by this unbelieving, evil heart. Because if you do, the potential then is that you apostatize and you fall away from a living God. There is a great difference here between saying that this born-again believer is, is evil versus be careful that evil unbelief doesn't infect you and then consume you and spiritually take your life. Now also note, when you look at verse 12, note how he starts, take care, brethren. Well, who are the brethren? Well, it's 
the brothers and sisters of this congregation, anybody that comes to the congregation and anybody that attends is part of the brethren. So it would be me saying to all of you, be careful that you don't allow evil unbelief to consume you. I'm not saying that you're evil and that you don't believe in Jesus, but I am saying that it's possible for all of us, because we lived in a, in a world that's cursed and because we still have remaining sin, it's possible because of that that we could follow unbelief, that we we are in one sense easy to follow sin and lies or susceptible to temptation. Maybe you remember as it says in First Corinthians, take heed, don't think you're strong lest you lest you fall. So here it's talking about this prevention. We want to prevent evil unbelief from taking root and growing in our very soul. Also, when you see that word brethren in verse 12, at least we could say it this way, and even in context of verses 7 through 11, uh, the Israelites, they were associated with God. Here, when he says brethren in verse 12, the Spirit of God through this writer is saying that there are people that associate themselves in some way with Christ, but because they give a listening ear to unbelief, it's evil. And unbelief, its intention is not to do you well, but to destroy you. But some people that are associated in some way with Christ, not authentic believers that are truly saved, but like a Judas, they're associated with Christ, but they haven't really truly embraced Christ from their hearts. And they listen more and more to evil can fall away from the living God. It's important to understand this. Though you've heard this before, let me remind you of John Owen's statement. Though sin, this is for the believer, though sin no longer reigns, it does what? It remains. And though the Christian's nature has changed, sin's nature that remains in us has not changed. Sin still wants to do us evil. It still wants to make us, cause us to go to hell and to hate God. And so we don't want to fall prey to remaining sin, evil unbelief. Evil unbelief will attack it. Paraphrasing John Owen, we're attacked by force or by fraud. And this passage is primarily talking about fraud. We'll lie to you. Though, if you're a believer, you no longer are chained to sin. Sin still remains in us, and its nature is still the same. It still attacks you by what? Telling you the truth? By lying to you. By lying to me. My sin, my, my remaining sin will lie to me. And so here, this passage is saying the preventive medicine here is think truth about who you are in Christ. Think about Jesus very clearly. Remember, it's about slogging step by step with God 
and getting closer and closer to Christ. It's not about necessarily the, these fantastic miracles and, and experiences that you have and mountaintop. No, it's about knowing God and knowing Christ. And then here now with our passage, guard against your deadly heart disease, uh, this disease of unbelief, and it's preventative. And every Christian needs to do this. But also, Christian, tell yourself how deadly unbelief is. This is part of taking heed that there not being any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. We need to tell ourselves how deadly unbelief is because we, we may say, you know what's really evil? Murder is evil. Abortion is, is evil. Homosexuality is evil. You know what's evil? Lies are evil. Not believing and trusting Jesus is, is evil. We need to tell ourselves and preach to ourselves that the unbelief in my heart is bad. Look back at, at the text that there will not be in any one of you, and I, I like how it, that phrases it, in any one of you, that is, there's, there's not one person here who doesn't have this problem. Not that all of us are listening to some way in the same exact manner, the same exact amount to evil unbelief in our hearts, but all of us need to be doing this duty. This duty of seeking to prevent unbelief from spreading in my own inner person. But think about this, this unbelief. What is the wisest thing that you could ever do? What is the wisest thing that you could ever do? The wisest thing that you and I could ever do is to trust God, is to trust the Lord, is to trust Jesus. But unbelief would say what? Trust yourself. Trust yourself. Or trust the government. Or trust some man. Trust some woman. Trust money. The wisest thing that you could ever do, however, is to trust the Lord. What would be the thing that you could do to bring yourself the most benefit? To do the most good to your own, even your own physical life, what would be the best thing you could ever do? Trust the Lord. But unbelief would give you a whole list of things that you should do rather than trust the Lord. I, I've used this verse often. I'm going to use it again. I love it. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How what? How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. All those who trust him are blessed by God. When you trust God, when you trust Jesus, there is incredible, infinite blessings. Actually, as you keep looking at verse 12, it says, in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart. Uh, unbelief is evil because it's not just because it's unwise, not just because it's dumb, but it's immoral. Not trusting God is immoral. 
Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Part of trusting is adoring, is loving God with everything that we are. You, you trust that which you value the most. And so if we're not trusting God and his word, trusting Christ and his word, then we're finding something else. We're saying something else has a greater value. And I'm going to trust that. I'm going to trust him or, or her over God, over the Lord. And that is one of the most immoral things we could ever do. One of the most wrong things we could ever do is to trust, delight in, adore, take refuge in something or someone other than the Lord. That's why it's called evil unbelief. Unbelief will shut down your prayer life. It will close your Bible. Squash your hopes. Minimize Christ. And then you begin to despair. All at the same time, you're going to church and you're not necessarily living an immoral life. But Unbelief has told you, don't read the Bible, don't pray. Christ isn't that important. Trust yourself. God isn't for you. Christ doesn't love you. It's not true. This is what unbelief does. And so it's it's unwise, it's dumb, but it's also evil. It's immoral. That is this unbelief, this lack of trusting God. It's terrible. It's like a a good king that gave you a key to a treasure hoard and said, I love you. Here is my key. And that treasure hoard is yours. And because I love you, here's the key. Go take it and enjoy it. And if you said, no, I don't think you're good. And I think you are lying. What would that king do? Would that honor the king? That's what we're doing when, when we don't trust God, when we don't trust God the Son, when we're not trusting the, the triune God, we're saying to truly, not even metaphorically, we're truly saying to the king of kings, I don't trust you. you actually, you're not good and you're a liar. So in that sense, this unbelieving heart is evil, is is wicked, and it doesn't mean to bless you or bless me. It means to steal our very eternal lives away. And this is where sin starts, and this is where drifting away from Christ starts, is that people, beloved people that we know, that are associated with Christ, give too much time to this temptation of unbelief. And it's deceitful, because it's promising something better. It's promising something better. And so we have to be careful. We have to take heed. We have to be on guard. Further, keep looking at your text in verse 12. And notice it talks about that falls away from the living God. And this actually is the word in Greek. It's basically sounds almost exact same as apostasy. It sounds in Greek almost the same. Here in English, in my Bible, it says that falls away from the living God. It is the Greek word to apostatize. If we don't diligently and carefully take heed with our own spiritual condition, 
then what could happen is that we could apostatize from the living God. This word apostasy is the idea of taking steps purposefully away from God. Some translations will say rebel from God. And here, it's not the idea of apostasy and falling away. I think the, 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 the term is okay, but if we're not careful, it can kind of sound like here's somebody that professed Christ. They're kind of just walking one day. Oh! oh they fell, and now they go to hell. That, that's not the idea of falling away. It's, it's more of the idea, as all of us, as believers, with time, with trials, with temptations, we make choices based upon lies that we either listen to or don't listen to. Are we going to follow the truth or are we going to follow lies? And time, trials, and temptation will reveal, was it a professor or possessor of Christ? Trials, time, and temptation reveal whether the person was merely a professor of Christ or do they actually possess Christ? And then what happens is a person doesn't just happen to fall, but they've made choices to believe lies, and so they are stepping away, stepping away from God and from Christ. Uh, again, Judas didn't just happen one day, oh, I'm going to betray Christ. He had a plan. He had a scheme, and he did it deliberately because he believed lies. This is the idea of apostasy, rebellion against God based upon unbelief. Adam refused to trust God and his word, and he ruined the world. Adam refused to trust God, and he ruined the world. Allowing unbelief to fester in you, really, it's like allowing gangrene to fester in your toe. And unfortunately, by experience, if we know if you allow that to happen, it can take your life. Unbelief is like gangrene. And if you don't deal with it, Eventually, it will cause you to apostatize. That is, to, to step away from God. Not something to be like, oh, but rather, it may start off small. It may be, I don't believe in the book of Hebrews. I don't believe in the Old Testament. I don't believe in, in the New Testament. And then, more and more areas in what you believe get compromised. Unbelief, in one sense, is worse than death. Keep looking at verse 12. Be careful that there's not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And I'm seeking to talk about, I'm seeking right now to talk about how we need to talk to ourselves about how how evil, how bad unbelief is. And I've tried to give several different ways. It can cause us to apostatize, to fall away, to step away from God. But also, realize that Unbelief is worse than death. When you die, in a sense, death will send you to even to either 
Hell or heaven, right? When you die, death, it's a road to either heaven or hell. Unbelief has one path, and that's to hell. So in that sense, unbelief is worse than than death, right? I, I would rather have people that I love trust Jesus and die than have people that I love have unbelief and live. Because <laughs> eventually they will die and go to hell, right? But the, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Unbelief has one road, that's hell. Unbelief will not bless you. And so the Spirit is saying to you and to me, don't, don't pet unbelief like it's a cute labradoodle puppy. No. It's a dragon, and it will bite your head off. Maybe even slowly, and you don't even know it. So we're talking about guarding your, your heart, guarding our hearts from this deadly disease of unbelief. And right now we're talking about we seek to prevent it. It's important. We said we need to talk to ourselves how deadly it is. But also we refuse to settle for a formalistic religion of Christ. We refuse to settle for a Christianity that is just external form. And and I think that the text is doing this when it talks about the living God. And verse 12, but also chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, which talked about who we are in Christ, about clearly considering Jesus, and about verse 6, about continuing on in Christ. The Israelites had a form of religion. They even had the Ten Commandments. They even had the, they had and were getting the whole Pentateuch. They had all kinds of forms of religion, but yet they rejected God. And here, the Spirit of God is saying, in this text, don't settle for a form of religion because you could have an outward form, but yet inside of you, there could still be an evil, unbelieving heart. That is, can an unbeliever enjoy a sermon? I've known unbelievers that have enjoyed sermons. Unbelievers have, like... Benjamin Franklin has walked off this, the crowd of people that were watching and listening to George Whitfield preach. Benjamin Franklin walked it off and then was able to calculate how many people were there listening to George Whitfield's sermon. Benjamin Franklin liked many sermons. Was he saved? I don't think he was, if I remember correctly. Uh, Judas seemed to like to listen to many sermons. Was he saved? No. That is, we can have this outward form of, that's that guy's a good preacher, that entertains me, but not truly be saved. Even, I forgot whether it's Felix or Agrippa, one of them liked to hear Paul. Were they saved? Evidence of your salvation is not that you like to hear a sermon. You can like to hear a sermon and go to hell. That's not our fruit of the Spirit. A form, it's it's not bad to enjoy a sermon, but that's not the sum and substance of what it means to follow Jesus. 
an external form could be that you like to sing songs loud. An external form could be, and I'm for this, you go to the prayer meeting every Wednesday. I think you, I think that'd be great. But you could do that and go to hell. Because you haven't dealt with your heart. You could work hard. You could believe that Jesus was Lord and a real person. You could believe that Jesus was God and still go to hell. Is that true? The demons believe in God and they're going to hell. The demons would even see Jesus and they would say, the Holy One of God. But yet they go to hell. There's a difference between acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and God and acquiescing that Jesus is Lord and God and adoring and taking refuge in him. We want to be careful because our God is a living God. He is real. He is true. He created life. Even now, Colossians one seventeen says that he causes all things to stand together. God is the one that gives life. Every breath that we have now, every single molecule, whether it's of this podium or whether the hair is on your head, it's all held together by that cosmic power of Christ that Colossians one seventeen talks about. Everything is alive because God is alive and he's true and he's real. Meaning, I think in this context, falls away from the living God, is that we can't fake things. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we just have a form, but no life within us of Christ, God detests that. It's hypocrisy. And Revelation 3 says, what does Jesus do with that? He spits it out. Would you want a a car that had no engine? Maybe you would. <laughs> would you want a cardboard cake? How many want a cardboard cake? I can think of one entity that I know of today that wants a cardboard cake. My dog. That's it. That's it. Because it's not real for us. It's an illusion. It, it's not satisfying. It's not tasty. It's fake. And so here in this text, it's saying that God is, is real. He is true. It's, it's evil and it's unbelief that actually will be eternally tasteless and, and horrible and disgusting. Don't trust it. Trust God. Don't fake it. Be frank with yourself. Don't settle for form. Follow Jesus and seek to know him. Again, Philippians 3.3, 3, Paul says he gloried in Christ Jesus. And later in the passage, he said he counted all things, all things in life to be garbage, considering to know Jesus. You can carry your Bible like it's a magic talisman. You can go to church like it's this great lucky charm. But if you don't know Jesus, it's just an outward form. Unbelief and external form, they go hand in hand. They, they love each other. Now finally, and we'll end with this point. We're talking about how to prevent this, this unbelief. Don't settle for form only. It's not that form is bad. Don't settle for that. Go, go beyond that. Go to Christ. 
spend time with him, take refuge in him. We speak the truth about unbelief to ourselves, but then also we speak truth to ourselves. We speak truth to ourselves. For example, and I think I've known people that have fallen away because of this, that have apostatized, that have left Jesus, and that is this. I, I prayed that God would heal me, and I was taught that by his stripes, Isaiah 53, we are healed. And so I prayed, I prayed for years that God would heal me or that God would heal my, my, my wife or, or my children from, from their disease and he didn't do it. So God lied or God must not be real. Christianity is a sham. And what happened is I promised something to myself that God did not exactly promise to me. I said he did, but he didn't, not the way that I said he did. Isaiah 53, yes, there is healing and the atonement, but not yet. That healing is going to take place when we see Christ and when we're with him forever and forever and forever. Philippians 3.20 says that, yes, I will have a body that will be conformed to the body of his glory. Every single Christian here this morning, your body will be glorious. And any physical problem you have, you'll be completely healed forever and forever. And God may choose to heal you right now. But he hasn't promised to heal you right now. But you will be healed. This is based upon Philippians 3.20. And so we don't want to lie to ourselves. We speak truth to ourselves. We all have different kinds of infirmities. God will heal me. It might be today. It might be when I die. (laughs) When I die, for sure, then I will be healed. Which is wild and should be also comforting to think about. We speak truth to ourselves. One truth that we had, not truth, but one lie that we've heard is God wants you rich. Philippians 4.19 says that God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. And sometimes that can be misused. Well, scripture also says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And so some people will say all these things. So I've prayed for this, this, and this, this, this. I still haven't got that. I've been praying for 11 years. Lord, I want a house on a hill where I can see the sound and Mount Rainier at the same time for $200,000 with 10 acres. I've been praying for that every day and it hasn't happened yet. God must not be real. Now, that may seem silly, but I've talked with individuals that have prayed prayers like that and their prayer is not exactly answered the way they want it to be answered. So God must not be real. How could God do this to me? That's not what God promised. Place him first and he'll give you what you need. All the mansions and gold and all that, you'll get that later forever and it'll be 10 billion times better than than what, what you think this earth has to offer you. Speak truth to yourself, not lies. Sometimes people, and I think... This could have been their problems with the Hebrews. Remember, they were losing their possessions. They or their friends are being placed in prison. Sometimes it can be communicated, trust Jesus, and then life will get better. Trust Jesus, life will get better. When Jesus said what? Pick up the cross and follow me. Not wear a cross, pick up a cross. Be willing to lay down your life and die. You could face a horrible type of death. Are you willing to make that kind of commitment? Matthew 10, trusting the gospel could put family members against you and you lose your family. So we, 
And so some people don't understand those things because it's been miscommunicated to them that the Christian life is a piece of cake. It's not a piece of cake. It's hard when we follow Jesus. So we speak the truth to ourselves. You, you've heard it said, it is what it is. Like, you know, something bad happens or something that I, I don't like. It is what it is. We have to be very careful because that's basically paganism. It is what it is. Really? Oh, it's not. It's not. The, the universe has determined it is, and so it is. No. Isaiah 46, verse 10 talks about that whatever he set his heart to do, he will do it. He knows the end from the beginning, saying, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So we speak truth to ourselves. God determines it is what it is. God's in control. And so Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all His your ways, and he will direct your path. It's not that God's going to put into your head what he wants you to do, but God's going to go before you and make his path, even through crooked lands and left and right, he's going to smooth this out so he, get, he gets you to the place where he wants you to be, Romans eight twenty eight. It's not that God's going to do whatever you want or that life is just, it is what it, no. God is in absolute control of all things. Even when things go bad, is God in control? You know, my, my mom died, my dad died, my two oldest brothers died. Lisa's father died. Did that slip out of God's control? No, that's right, did not. God's in control over all things. So what we are saying is that truth empowers faith, lies empower unbelief. And the unbelief will hurt you. Speak truth to yourself. Don't listen to your own lies. Probably the greatest liar you've ever heard is who? Yourself. The greatest liar, other than Satan, that you've ever heard could be yourself. Therefore, look out! Look out! Take the sword of truth and strike unbelief and your heart. And then when you do that, you won't depart from Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may we truly take the, the word of truth and hit ourselves with it, Lord. Hit our own unbelieving hearts with it. Speak truth to ourselves. And always be alert for lies that we believe and rather preach your truth to yourself that you are good, that you are, are great, that you are the bread of life, that you are more than all that we need, that you are sufficient, that with you are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and life. Lord, guard these dear people from unbelief that may be lingering in their hearts, that they would not depart from Christ, but even draw closer to Christ. Lord, we praise you, we give you thanks. Amen.